What does a preacher do without a pulpit? Oh, there it is. That might help. With some pulpits, I also need a soapbox to stand on, but this, this one's a little high, but it's all right. But why don't you turn with me to the book of Romans. We are at long last back in Romans, the classic of the Christian faith, a book that started spiritual revolutions down through the centuries. Augustine read one verse in it and converted to Christianity. Uh, it was behind the Reformation, the First and Second Great Awakening, and it's a book that has a powerful impact in many different ways. And so we've been working our way through this book verse by verse as kind of the undergirding foundation, the permeating power of what God wants to do through us over the last number of years. And today, finally, we come to Romans 15. Uh, we're going to be starting uh, in verse 14. But before I begin, and this does relate to where we're going, it relates really to the ultimate application of our text for today. I'm curious, how many of you were here last week? Okay, a good number of you were. Last Sunday we talked about our 40 days of congregational uh, prayer and fasting that we're going to be doing all together that will lead up to Easter. And it's going to start in a couple of weeks on February, Tuesday, February 28th. And the 40th day will be uh, a Sunday, uh, a Saturday before Easter Sunday. It's, it's the best way I know to prepare for Easter. Really, in a lot of ways, it's the traditional way. Through the, the about about the forty day period that traditionally the church is called Lent, where we give up something in order to gain something far better uh, on Easter Sunday, the resurrection uh, power of Christ, and it's the best way I know to prepare for the difficult times. And we talked about this last week that are very likely ahead of us to come together as a body against the powers of darkness that are amassing, even as I speak, that have been amassing for quite some time. And uh, if you weren't here, I'd urge you to listen to the podcast of the sermon last week, which you can get by just going to our website, and then to listen to the message on fasting, which I also encouraged you to do last week, that I gave way back in October of last year, on October 9th. Those two messages will get you up to speed as to where we are and to exactly what we're doing and how uh, we're going to be doing it. We're having a four-week sign-up starting last week, actually. You can see the sign-up sheets on the welcome table. You can fast a meal a week over the 40-day period. That's six meals over six weeks or for three days in a row sometime during the 40 days. Uh, one person I know is ready for a 21-day fast. They've worked their way up over the years to 14, and now they're ready to go to 21. Uh, the goal would be to fill up each meal as a community. There are 120 meals over 40 days to fill up each meal uh, at least once, maybe several times. We'll see what God does. Why are we doing it? Well, it's kind of like Mindy Grieve said. How many of you know Mindy Grieve? I know a number of you do. In the first service, a ton of people did. She attended here for several years. She actually just left a few months ago. And I got uh, this from her last Wednesday. It's an email. She said, Pastor Brian, I'm in Denver this week spending time with my daughter, Kelsey, and I had the privilege of seeing Jan Muller uh, yesterday, and she caught me up on all the wonderful things that's, that are happening at the church. She shared with me about the fasting and what God was doing in her heart as a result of the message. And so um, after she left yesterday, I pulled up your podcast and listen to last week's message and the one from October 9th on fasting. What powerful truths. They impacted my heart at great depths and are continuing the journey that God has started my husband and me on, which he started in January. 
My husband is a minister and professor at Pacific Life, a Life Pacific College. He's teaching a discipleship and spiritual formation class this semester, and I'm joining him both as a student and occasional guest lecturer. We're using Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, which I'd highly recommend, uh, which goes into the traditional discipline of fasting, as well as Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Pathways, another classic, along with Bill Hall's The Complete Book of Discipleship as textbooks for the course. What a wonderful group of books. All that to say that we have always embraced fasting on our spiritual journey, and listen to this, and have found that God always does incredible things as a result. And then she follows that with a one-word sentence, with one word, and that is the word always. Always. You don't necessarily see it right away, but always. I have found over the last 40 years that God works powerfully through fasting. And we're going to be um, looking today at, at, at Paul's ministry and how that this is really a powerful application of it. We're going to be looking today and for the next two weeks at Paul's passion for ministry, a passion that wasn't just for the apostles, as we're going to see, but for all of us, for each of you. We're going to see that you really become alive in Christ, that you're not just existing, but that you're, you're really living when you get a passion for serving. And it's infectious, as we're going to see from Paul's example. But when it comes to getting involved in ministry, some of you may feel like I do, uh, or I used to, and I still do to this day, of uh, when you go into the grocery store, at least if you're a man. I hope you do. It's called incompetence, to put it mildly. And I've been heartened to know that this is an affliction common to men. Uh, to undergo some serious frustration in grocery stores. And there's a lesson there. If not outright tribulation. Sometimes I get mad before I even go into the doors because I know I'm going to forget something or not see something that's staring me in the face or whatever. Maybe that's what you feel like when you think of joining us, you know, in our 40 days of prayer and fasting. A little bit incompetent. I can understand that. For many, fasting looks like a grocery store kind of an errand, more like a grocery store kind of a saga, maybe. Whenever I go, something happens, it seems, to prove my incompetence. And almost inevitably, Julie says, I'm not going to send you there again. I remember once I was doing a little shopping with Julie, got to the checkout stand with all my stuff, and I said to the cashier, oh, by the way, I'm also going to need a seedless watermelon. And the clerk looked at me and she said, and she looked underneath my cart as though she was playing hide and seek. She said, okay, where is it? And uh, I said, well, of course, they're outside. I saw them outside in front of the store. So I guess I'll just pay for it here, right? And then I go to the car and get it. And she said, well, uh, we, we do need to weigh it first. And I said, oh, so it's not like ice that you pay for here and then you pick it up once you leave with your receipt. And she, she, uh, she said, uh, no. And then she pointed me to the watermelons that were stacked inside the store. And I uh, went over and got one. And when I got back, she said, I thought you said you needed a seedless watermelon. And I said, this isn't seedless. And she uh, turned to me, looked me square in the eyes, and she said, no, they're the ones that are not long. You know, they are, it's called round, as in basketball. As though as a man, that was something I could remember. And I said, ah, and so I went back again, and this time, I kid you not, she, she went with me. <laughs> Left everyone in the line and went with me. to. And uh, I, it was one of those really busy times, you know how it can get. And the line was getting longer, and they were, you know, just glaring at me. 
And uh, at least it felt like it. So when I got back, my eyes were not on them, but on the watermelon. I was trying to look like an expert, you know, turning it over and knocking on it as though I knew what it was supposed to sound like. And I did finally look up just in time to see her opening my egg carton. Now, why would you think she'd open the egg carton? If you're a woman, you probably know. Uh, And some of you men may too. Uh, uh, And she opened it up and three of them were broken. And she looked at me. She said, you didn't check these, did you? (laughs) Did you? And I I said, oh, you've got to check them. And, of course, I had forgotten. I remembered as she said that. I don't think she did. But the same thing happened to me with the same checkout clerk like three weeks ago when I came with with an egg carton with broken eggs. And she told me to go and get another carton. (laughs) And uh, she said, and don't forget to look in it, okay? before you take it. And I turned around and started for the dairy section. And I tell you, eyes were burning a hole in the back of my head, everyone in line as I went. And and I was thinking, you know, many are the afflictions of the righteous. I've got a higher calling in life. And the Lord delivers them out of all. Lord, save me. I'm never going to do this again. And and, uh, maybe that's the way you feel at the thought of, you know, ministry. So you avoid it. And so you never get out and you let everyone else do all the work. And it's the 80-20 rule where 20% of the people in the church do, you know, 80% of the work. And you end up a couch potato believer, you know, who's maybe fat, but not very happy. Filled, but unfulfilled. Most people... um, you know, especially in Summit County, we view that place as a place to avoid, right? Especially during certain times of the day or the season. And uh, it's a place you pass through so you can get onto what's really important in life. Which is how a lot of people view the obligation of ministry. In fact, most leave it to someone else. And as we'll see today, those they leave it to find that it's more than just a, a grocery store experience. It's the best-kept joy, this side of glory. Many of you in this room, I don't need to tell you about that. Something as simple, maybe, as fasting a day a week for six weeks. It can change your life. Doing just that changed my life way back in 1973, I think it was, 40 years ago. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're coming back today to the third and the final section of the book of Romans. It's a very symmetrical book. It's divided into three main sections, and each of those three sections are divided into three parts. The third section is like the first two. It's got three parts, and today we're hitting the third part of the third section. And so we're really, yes, believe me, coming to the end. In it we find, really, in this third part of the third section, we find really the consummation of all of the great doctrines of the Christian faith that Paul unpacks uh, in this great book. And that is the consummation of it, Romans' third part of the third section, is a passion for ministry. It's what the Christian faith is all about. A passion for ministry. And here's what will be our main idea for the next three weeks. We all know, you know, that there's this God-shaped vacuum in us before we become Christians that only God can fill. But I'm afraid that in many Christians, for all practical purposes, there is still a vacuum because so many of them never get out there to the place where they can be filled to overflowing. 
Many Christians have become like the Dead Sea without anything going out. They are, are more like rev- reservoirs than rivers. And so you're like that Dead Sea. Maybe you're filled but unfulfilled. We're going to see today and in the next two weeks that your spiritual vocation, and each one of you has one or several, your spiritual vocation, your calling in life, where you exercise your spiritual gift, channels the, uh, the grace of God that was poured out at your salvation, and there's no greater exhilaration. It's like the purpose of life. Because we were saved to serve. And it's only then that the promise is fulfilled from Christ, John 17, 38. He who believes in me out of his innermost being will flow, what? Rivers of living water. He'll be a river and not a reservoir. And more than any other time is when we serve that the river surges and we say, you know, like we sing, flow, river, flow. Nothing like it. It can be a lot of work. Yes, it is a lot of work. It can be exhausting, maddening. And yet still, you'll quickly discover that it's not a grocery store. But really, it's an oasis in disguise. Something we were created to live on. Paul was a river, and he talks about it in these three verses. Uh, Over the next three weeks, we're going to see the secret of Paul's passion. And the same can be true of us. First, this week, you need a lofty ministry. That's verses 15 and 16. Second, next week, you need a laid-back identity, where it's not you're doing it all and taking the credit. It's allowing God to work through you and giving Him the credit. A laid-back identity. And then the third secret of Paul's passion is that in three weeks, you'll need a laboring intensity to prime the pump and to keep the rivers flowing. First, Paul knew that he had a lofty ministry, and that can stir us up like nothing else. In spite of its lowly appearance, in fact, in spite of the fact that it was just, you know, that that it's maybe just one day a week that you're fasting, and that energized him like nothing else. How so? Well, starting in verse 14, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Paul tees up this last section by telling them that they can do what he'd been doing for 15 chapters. He'd been admonishing them with the truths of the faith, telling them about all the goodness of God. And then he turns around and says, you guys can do the same thing. You can speak the truth in love. And there's a whole sermon there. But his overall idea is that we can do it too, that we should follow Paul's example. That's how he transitions into this section. And so that's how we're going to be spinning as we move on the application over the next three weeks as we look at Paul's example. And see how we can do it too, starting in the next verse, verse 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God. I was given God's grace, God's grace, saving grace, to do something. To fulfill my calling as an apostle, to remind you of certain things. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let's stop right there. Notice again that God's grace was given to him so he could do something with it. 
That's the main point here. He was saved by a grace that was given to him to be given to others. To be a fat and happy couch potato believer? Oh no, that's a reservoir. That's a dead sea. No, to be a minister. To be a river. Because God's goal was not just to save him. And too often we put a period and not a comma after it. It was to multiply his grace, his gracious work through him. And so it is with us. Notice second that Paul was called to be a minister to the Gentiles, he said. And notice that he makes a point of telling us this. In fact, in the next verse, he goes on to say that he has, a found, he has found a reason for boasting in this call of his, which is just what he's doing here. You know, so many, there's a lesson there, because so many don't serve because it's like going to the grocery store. They're afraid of being humbled. They're afraid of being shown to be incompetent. Paul, on the other hand, was a river rather than a reservoir, and he risked being humbled, and he was humbled by it, because on the foundation of knowing that he was saved to serve, right, he also knew that he had a lofty ministry in spite of its lowly, its lowly appearance. And he made a point of it here. He boasted in it. He gloried in it. Now, when we think of the Apostle Paul, you're thinking lowly appearance. I thought he had a great ministry. Well, you've got to put yourself back in New Testament times. When we think of him, we think of a man who had a very high calling, almost on the level of the President of the United States, as far as Christianity is concerned. I mean, a minister, he said, of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become unacceptable. Except that back then, Gentile was a G word. It was a pretty bad word. To the vast majority of Christians of Paul's day, most of whom were Jews, to become a minister of God to the Gentiles would not have been a promotion. It would have been a serious demotion. Peter was the one who had the high calling in the eyes of the New Testament church because he was the apostle to the Jews, and that's where, that's where it was at. That's what they thought the whole point of the cross was all about. And no one knew back then that the Jews would fall, you know, into obscurity and that the Gentiles would, like, take over the whole spiritual landscape of the world, eventually in every nation of the world. And so Paul's ministry was really a happening thing. It was ground zero of something unbelievable. But it wasn't exactly the natural desire even of Jewish Christians to uh, go to Gentiles. From the very beginning, Paul's ministry took on a very lowly appearance, even a questionable appearance. He actually had to convince the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem that it was a valid ministry in the first place. No one would have guessed that the whole New Testament, you know, would end up focusing on Paul uh, and not Peter. That, that Paul would become to the Christian faith what Moses had been uh, to the Jewish faith. That he would write half the New Testament. Peter would write only a couple of little books. And uh, just like Moses wrote the Pentateuch. That he'd be, Paul would be the father of millions because of his ministry. In fact, we ourselves are his inheritors. And one reason why all that happened, one secret of his passion, is that he exalted in the lofty reality of his lowly ministry. And there's a lesson there. 
There is a principle there that is really, really important and that I'd like to focus on today. And that is this, no matter what your ministry, even if it's a, you know, an apostolic ministry, there will always be the issue of its lowly appearance that you'll wrestle with. In someone's eyes, it's going to look like, you know, going to the grocery store and making a fool of yourself. Maybe in your eyes. You know, I served as a singles pastor in Houston for over a decade, Julie and I did, and we ministered with uh, young adults, young single adults and some older single adults, um, that the rest of the church typically in the American church uh, ignored, which is typical of singles ministries. One of the pet peeves of single adults is that they're invisible. The church is often oriented towards families, not singles, and we don't realize how left out they feel. Families are where it's happening. Or that's what it feels like if you're not in a family. And so we resolved from the very beginning, I resolved from the very beginning, way back in 1983, to preach and to teach and to shepherd that little flock, as we put it, as though they were the whole church. As though they were as important, more important than the rest of the church. I don't know how many times Julie and I had to remind ourselves of this because we knew that they needed that kind of commitment. And so did we to, you know, to turn what felt to them like this dry and weary land of singledom, to turn that into a, 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 you know, into a, a, a watered place, a, to bloom where we were planted without always looking at the greener grass that was in the limelight of where it's really at being a senior pastor. In fact, I used to say when they asked me how long, why I stayed so long there, I, uh, I said, well, you know, it's nice to bask in the shade. Because when you're in the limelight, all your faults show. So we had some selfish reasons, too. It took great courage for us to step out. But also the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth, Proverbs 17, 24. We kept reminding ourselves of that. You know, so often the grass is um, greener on the other side of the fence because you're not doing anything with the grass that's on your side of the fence, whether at home or in your ministry or wherever. And you'll end up pretty dry, and so will everything around you, unless you let the, 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 the river flow wherever you are. Wherever that may be, starting maybe with just fasting a meal a week. Huh, just... Now I'm a senior pastor. And lo and behold, there's the same struggle. Yeah, all your faults do show. And it's humbling. And it's an unfair advantage to growth. And sometimes you want to get out of the limelight. Big time. It's the same struggle, except it's for a different reason this time. For me, it has to do with the stereotype of, of the pastor and of the church that most people have who don't go to church. I'm always struggling with this. So much so that sometimes I don't like to tell people what I do. <laughs> Because it takes too much explaining before they'll get it. And then, yeah, even then, they usually don't. And if they do, they kind of back off. How do they view me? Someone called the church a conventional group of people who were addressed once a week by a conventional little man. I guess that part of it is true. Who seeks to persuade them to become more conventional. <laughs> And our standing as pastors only goes downhill from there. Not just, it's not just a prejudice that the culture is increasingly having against the conventional and the traditional, but even more against anything that smacks of, of conservative or fundamental, the F word. 
right? On the other side. They're angry. Almost, there's almost a murderous prejudice these days. We have a very lowly appearance in the eyes of the world. It's worse than being caught in a grocery store. And sometimes even we ourselves wonder what we're doing here. And yet, on the other hand, I can't believe I'm being paid to do it. This lofty reality to handle the Word of God. To pray hours a day sometimes for you and for kingdom issues that will have an impact for all eternity. To, to build the church that one day is going to come down as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The capital of the new creation. That's what we're all about. But it's all invisible. You can't see it. And it's the same with you. In a lot of ways, it's a lot easier for me in my ministry than for you in yours because at least, you know, I get a paycheck to validate, quote-unquote, what I do. It's like Howard Hendricks said. He's a professor at Dallas Seminary. He said, I'm paid to be good. You're good for nothing. But it's the same with you. The secret of your passion is to exalt in the lofty reality of what almost inevitably will seem like a lowly ministry. Because it's through that lowliness, that humility, and all the rest that God's power can be manifested. So it's always there. Wherever your ministry may be, and it begins by finding a ministry in the first place, a lowly, unseen ministry, like maybe a uh, uh, foregoing a meal during some lunch hour over six weeks just between you and God. Do that, and in the end, and we do it all together, we'll be singing, you'll be singing, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. We'll be singing, flow, river, flow. So one of the main reasons why people aren't involved in the first place, why some of those who are have so little passion for it, is that we don't have eyes to see the loftiness of the lowly, the, the reality of what looks to, like totally invisible, right? That you can't see, the necessity of the unseen. It's all called the reverse economy of the kingdom of heaven where little is big, great is small. That's why Christ said that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, little particles of yeast that no one can really see, which some woman took and hid in three packs of meal. And to this day, no one knows who that woman was. And in the end, it was all leavened. Luke 13, 21, The kingdom of heaven, Christ said, is like a mustard seed, Matthew 13, 31, which a man, who of course goes unnoticed, unnamed, which a man, a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. There are tons of verses, passages like that. I've, I've cut many pages out, but do you see the principle? The lowly appearance, the lofty reality. The greatest saints are the most passionate saints who by faith see the loftiness of the lowly. Who go to the grocery store because they know what it will mean for their wives. Who are gracious to the poor because they know that is the very heart of true Christianity. Like the group of us uh, that are going to Haiti, led by uh, Mark Hill, this I, actually, this very coming Wednesday. Way to go. That's what it's all about. Going to this no-good, down-under country that nobody cares about anymore. 
It's the highest that you can get. Who visit the sick, who teach those who are in prison or on parole, or who teach children in Sunday school, like some of you do. Who, you know, work in the library back there, or in, uh, back in the sound booth, or in the kitchen. Who help cook for iron hour. Way to go, Ron Bristol and your team. And uh, who clean up after iron hour, real men do dishes. Who do their little part in the church because they know that is what it takes for, for us as a church to attain, as Paul says, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. Ephesians 4.13. What does it take? Ephesians 4.16 being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. They're invisible joints for the most part. According to the proper working of each individual part, for the growth of the body, for the building up of the body in love. What does it take? Like it says in your bulletin, what if the church was a verb? Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you become a noun. You become a verb. You become a doing being. You become a river. Not a reservoir. And what results as a result of that, what results in the heavenly places, what we rarely see is this conflagration of the church of Jesus Christ. That when each one of us lets our little light shine, because God's goal is not just to save us, but to multiply His gracious work through us all together. Just like He did with Paul just like he did with me in Switzerland many years ago in a small alpine village called Waymo sur Olon, where I studied back in 1973. It was a Christian community called Labri. Labri is French uh, for the shelter. It was founded by Francis Schaeffer, the philosopher, theologian, who went on to, to transform the whole evangelical culture. And do you know where a good part of that influence came from? Once a week, every Monday noon, no one knows about this unless you've studied there, they encouraged everyone who felt led to fast. Just a meal a week. Just. Over lunch. They never let their financial needs be known. They just prayed and fasted once a week. And they never had a need. And they went on to leaven the entire evangelical world. That's what got me going almost 40 years ago now. They recommend reading this book, God's Chosen Fast. It was a classic 40 years ago, and it's still in print. God's Chosen Fast, a spiritual and practical guide to fasting. It's good. And uh, there were 20 of them on the welcome table available. Now they're all gone, but there's going to be 20 more next week. This isn't going to start till the 28th. And uh, again, we'll be focusing on three things during this fast. Three very simple, very important things. First, you'll be getting a spiritual warfare prayer. We're almost out of them, uh, but there will, Lord willing, be another stack next week. Spiritual warfare prayer that Julie and I have been using uh, for years. It'll help you uh, put on the armor of God like we talked about last, last week in the evil day to turn you into a warrior. 
even as Paul says we need to do. It's a prayer that, uh, that God has used in our lives powerfully. To, and the first thing we'll be doing is to pray through that entire prayer each meal that you sign up to fast. When you sign up, just write down the dates, the times, the meals that you're going to fast on this uh, uh, brochure, and uh, then just stick it in your Bible. Each meal, pray through that prayer. In this prayer, you'll be duking it out with the powers of darkness, which are, of course, the real enemy. Not flesh and blood, as Paul says, not people, not politicians, not the economy, not the uncertainty of our times. All these things are very important, but there's something even more important. Through it all, our real enemy is those who would seek to exploit these things to bring us down spiritually. And we must not be ignorant of Satan's schemes. So as a body, we're not going to be ignorant. Two, so first you'll pray that prayer every meal. Second, you'll focus on some issue. Some issue in your life or in the life of a family member or a friend or a loved one where you need a breakthrough where you have just been hitting up against that concrete wall again and again, you can't get over, under, around, and you're just at the end of yourself, and yet something has got to happen. You feel it deep in your soul. That is a call to fast. And I believe we're going to see many, many breakthroughs. Maybe not necessarily what we were looking at, looking for. When you fast, you really give it up to God's agenda, but breakthroughs nonetheless. That's the second thing. And then three, we're going to be together as a body, shodding our feet, as Paul says, with the preparation of the gospel at peace, of peace. That is the, the last part of this whole spiritual warfare section in Ephesians. Well, first, we'll start by putting on the armor of God, and then we'll be praying, and then we'll be moving out, shodding our feet by praying for one person that God puts on your heart to invite to the Easter service over the 40-day period. And even if they don't come, you've been praying and fasting for that person, and it will have an impact in the end. But pray that God would give you the opportunity to invite them to the Easter service, which all this is leading up to, because the 41st day, Easter Sunday, will be the day we break the fast to celebrate the resurrection power of Christ that comes through our weakness. And we'll be filled as a body and ready to go in a dark day. Just a meal a week, you might be thinking. What good could that do? You know, if Brian Myers fasted 40 days, why even try? Well, to me, it started 40 years ago with me, with just a meal a week. And some of you may need to do more than a meal a week. God may have brought you to that place. But what I learned at La Brie was that a meal a week can be a lot, right? If we're all doing it together. What I learned way back then and what God has continued to confirm as I've studied again and again through the Scripture is something about the reverse economy of the kingdom of heaven. What I learned is that you, you should never despise small beginnings. Never despise your part in what we're doing together. I learned that we can change the world if we each only do our little part. I learned what Herman Ostry learned. You may have heard this. Herman Ostry's barn floor was under 29 inches of water because of a rising creek. The Bruno, Nebraska farmer invited a few friends to a barn raising. 
He needed to move his entire 17,000-pound barn to a new foundation more than 143 feet away and higher. His son Mike devised a latticework of steel tubing and nailed, bolted, and welded it on the inside and the outside of the barn. Hundreds of handles were attached. After one practice lift, 344 volunteers... Hey, that's about the size of our church. After one practice lift, 344 volunteers slowly walked the barn up a slight incline, each supporting less than 50 pounds. In no time at all, it was on a new foundation. We're going to do some heavy lifting in the heavenly places over 40 days. We're going to be moving some mountains. It'll be just like Mindy says. God always does incredible things as a result of prayer and fasting. Always. And today I invite you to be a part of it. Or at least to pray about it. I'll be at the welcome table if you'd like to talk about it further. You might call it the entrance to the grocery store. to answer any questions you might have. Father, we do want to thank you for your word. What would we do without it? Who makes, which makes things so very clear that we would never have seen otherwise. Thank you for the reverse economy of the kingdom of heaven, for the privilege by faith of being involved in this enterprise that will result in the civilization of a new creation one day. Father, I pray for each one here today that you would speak to them and show them their part. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, why don't we all stand? Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Practice true Christianity. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the saving grace, be with us and through us this week. Amen and amen. Thanks for coming.